TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. Today's special is Memphis Soul Stew. I can't stand the rain. I'm a rep this here till I walk up on death down in the past. Yeah, Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Tennessee. 901 Shelby Drive. Look alive, look alive. Down in the sweet old Memphis, Tennessee, y'all. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Memphis Musicology, the official podcast of the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum. I'm your host, Ezra Wheeler. So as uh, you may know, we've taken the past month off or so, and I have to say it was a much-needed break, but it's also great to be back in the studio with some more stories about the best of Memphis music. Hope everyone out there is having a great summer and staying cool, but uh, if not, which is probably the case if you're here in Memphis, then... Hopefully this episode will give you some good tunes to listen to as you, you know, chill out by the pool or frolic on the beach or, you know, put your head in your freezer, whatever whatever gets you through these days. Anyway, today on the show, I'm excited about this one. Um, we're going to be talking about an eccentric entrepreneur by the name of Style Wooten. Style was an amateur musician, a record producer, and he owned and operated several small labels during the 1960s and 70s. And those labels covered everything from rock to country to blues to funk. But somewhat surprisingly, it was actually his gospel imprint uh, called Designer Records that I think ultimately would prove to be his crowning achievement. And that's the label we're going to focus on today. So unlike uh, any other Memphis label of the era, or at least any that I'm aware of, you know, Stax, Ardent, High, Designer Records was a so-called vanity label, which meant that literally anyone could come off the street and record, providing that they had enough money to pay for a session. So, once again, we're not doing talent scouts, we're not signing big contracts, we are, for a flat fee, come in and record. So, because of that open-door policy, I think one could reasonably assume that, you know, that kind of setup would lead to a discrepancy in talent and probably more than a few recordings from folks who were you know, perhaps a little too confident in their musical abilities. But that's actually one of the things that makes designer records uh, and their output just so amazing. Because, and we're, of course, going to hear a few tracks, but with very few exceptions, uh, those amateur recordings that were cut there in the decade between 68 and 78 are really some of the most scorching and soulful gospel numbers that I've ever heard. Um and I really think that a lot of them could have been major hits under different circumstances. Part of it was just the smallness of the label. A lot of it was the crudeness. And a lot of it was just the, you know, lack of ambition in the best kind of way. So that being said, uh, to that point, one gets the sense from listening to these songs that the musicians were not really overly concerned with climbing the billboard charts or making piles of money. But instead, they were largely regular people making you know, the most honest and heartfelt music they could with 
pretty much the simple goal of sharing it with their family and friends and the community and selling them as they traveled on the road and make a few bucks. Um, but once again, pretty simple goals and simple ambitions. But the results are anything but. I mean, they're often profound and even a bit avant-garde. So anyway, before we jump into the story of Style Wooten and Designer Records, I want to take a listen to a track from a group that uh, recorded with a designer called Little Willie Patterson and the famous Southland Singers. So, like almost every artist we're going to hear from today, there's literally nothing at all known about this group, at least not on the internet. Um, but I think that really just kind of adds to the mystique and beauty of it all. That Kind of the one of the things that, other than the quality of the music that you know, drove me to do an episode on designer is just the fact that it really was folks off the street, very few of whom, if any, made a name for themselves. Anyway, without further ado, I want to play the track Letter from Jesus by Little Willie Patterson and the famous Southland Singers. I got a letter from Jesus. Do you want to know how it begin our story today with that man who founded designer records, Mr. Style Wooten. But years before he had christened himself as Style, our hero was born in 1921 as Jesse Graham in Woodlawn, Tennessee. Um, He was born to a Native American woman named Zula, and his father was Scandinavian, although apparently he disappeared really early in Style's childhood. So, Probably predictably, things were pretty rough for Style and his single mother during those early years, but through a, through fate, luck, whatever, their fortunes changed pretty quickly when a wealthy family of tobacco farmers uh, named Wooten eventually took the two in, and Jesse Graham ultimately took their last name and became Jesse Wooten, and at some point in the ensuing years, changed his name to Style. So that's how Jesse Graham became Style Wooten. Anyway, as luck would have it, the Wootens were an extremely musical family, and they introduced style to the guitar, bass, mandolin, piano, fiddle, and drums. Um, So he's a multi-instrumentalist, and also really instilled a great appreciation for musics of all genres. He really, uh, you know, just grew up with that kind of wide view of music. Anyway, years later, in the 1950s, when style had grown into a six-six-foot giant, with a massive beard, uh, pointy waxed mustache. It's kind of saying, telling somebody earlier, he's the proto-hipster of sorts. He looks like he should be in Brooklyn. But yeah, huge man. Anyway, he got first job as a young adult was starting his own trucking company called Wooten Trucking. But when that event uh, business eventually closed down, Style turned back to his childhood love and really dedicated himself fully to the music business. So his first foray into the industry was as a musician. Um, he played fiddle in a country and bluegrass band, which 
maybe isn't notice- notable, except for you may remember uh, that is both how the owner of Stax Records and the owner of Goldwax Records and the owner of High Records. That's what they all did before opening up black music labels. So there's something about being a country fiddler that leads you into being a great black music producer, apparently. Anyway, I digress. So he did a little bit of his fiddling in country and bluegrass bands, but quickly transitioned into managing some of the other bands he had met at the club scene. Anyway, around 1964, Stahl made one final career change um, after he met a man named Gene Williams. And Gene was the owner of a record label in West Memphis. And before long, Stahl was pretty much acting as Gene's right-hand man in the studio. He assisted him with recording and production and think really learned the ropes of how to manage a studio. Um, it's notable, too, that Gene's studio was run also as a vanity label to where they're dealing with people off the street. So, of course, that was a pretty influential thing in uh, Wooten's life, I would imagine, because that, of course, is the path he went down. Anyway, about a year later, Style ventured off on his own and uh, started two labels. One was called Big Style, and the other one was Eugenia. And he also founded a publishing company called Stylecraft. So early on, his first couple sessions were held with country musicians, uh, Sylvia Mobley, Cowboy Slim Dorch. But before long, he really started working custom, uh, exclusively on uh, producing custom records. Once again, by anyone willing to pay, uh, willing to come in, pay, regardless of the genre, if you got the money, you're in. So one of his first moves was to start running ads in kind of blue-collar publications like the Farmer, Farmer's Almanac. And uh, the ads would say that for only $425, he would organize a studio session, record, produce, and master the recordings, and then manufacture between 50 and 1,000 copies of the record for the artist to take home or sell on the road or do, you know, whatever they wanted to do with them. So... Also, if Stahl felt that the recording was particularly strong, which would happen from time to time, he would go a step further and actually get them to sign a contract with the artist, which would give him the responsibility of promoting and marketing them. So it was kind of a dual operation studio to an extent, although by and large, simply a pay-to-play kind of deal. Anyway, at this point, I think it's probably a good time to introduce the second big piece in this story, other than Style Wooten, and that is a Memphis music legend named Roland Janes. So I don't know if you know Janes, but at this point, he was the owner of Sonic Recording Studio. Um, he had opened it up a few years back in 1961, but before that, he had really been an integral figure at Sun Studios during its heyday. So Roland Janes, he played lead guitar um, with the pretty much de facto Sun Records house band, The Little Green Men. And he was on tracks like Great Balls of Fire and a whole lot of shaking going on. Um, you know, and really is seen as a uh, one of the primary architects of rockabilly and rock and roll. So anyway, the w- reason James is in our story is, once again, I mentioned he was owned a studio called Sonic Studios. And that is the studios that uh, would become the home for Style Wooten's recording sessions. And when the traveling singers arrived without their own musicians, which happened quite frequently, then the studio uh, would provide session players for them to play with. And oftentimes, even Roland James himself would play on guitar. So not too shabby for a makeshift band, a, a true music legend, and some of the tightest musicians in Memphis come with the gig. Anyway, as Roland James himself uh, recalled a little bit later, quote, 
I charged Style practically nothing for the studio. He'd bring those groups in there. They'd come in from Chicago, Milwaukee, Detroit, St. Louis, all over the place. Every weekend, we'd cut maybe five different groups. Way he'd do it, he'd cut four songs on each group. He'd put a single out, and then he'd hold on. He'd hold one in the can. What they'd do, they'd pay him a little bit at a time, and when they had enough money to press a record, he'd say, go ahead and press the records and give them X number of copies. Anyway, so over the next couple of years, Stahl went on to establish several different uh, additional labels, all specializing in their own subgenres. He had one called Allendale, Tente, Camaro, on and on. But it wasn't until 1967 when Wooten founded Designer Records and um, really hit musical gold. Um, it's hard to call it that because very few people have ever heard these recordings. But in terms of quality, he hit gold, if not in terms of the payday. Anyway, as I mentioned earlier, Designer was really set up uh, initially to accommodate any group willing to record anyone off the street, uh, regardless of genre. But for whatever reason, eventually it really became a recording hotspot for the traveling black gospel groups from around the nation that would come to Memphis. And also uh, Memphis gospel groups as well, who actually didn't, you know, didn't have a natural home studio elsewhere would come through. So among those local groups were the Jubilee Hummingbirds, which had formerly included future soul legends like James Carr and O.V. Wright, who you may remember from our episode about Goldwax Records. Um, if not, go back and listen to that one. But yeah, James Carr and O.V. Wright were both part of the Jubilee Hummingbirds, and they did cut a few tracks for Designer. So before we move on with our story, I want to listen to one of those tracks. This one is called Stand By Me by the Jubilee Hummingbirds. I want to talk about some of the things that I do when it seemed like to me all of my friends have turned their back on me. I like to go down on my knees sometime in the midnight hour and I like to tell God these words. Sometimes what the Lord is to me, you see. So just to reiterate, um, I think I've made the point well, but it really is the most remarkable thing about the music created at Designer is that it was all happenstance. You know, as a vanity label, Designer virtually had no control over the quality of the talent that would walk through the doors. Um, And by and large, the people that we hear on these tracks were, you know, farmers, teachers, uh, butchers, maids, just salt-of-the-earth people looking for a creative outlet. I mean, 
little formal training outside of the church, but yet, as I hope you'd agree from the couple songs we've heard so far, the music that was created there was consistently impressive, uh, inspiring, and like, like I said, sometimes doubt, uh, downright avant-garde, not necessarily what we've heard yet, but there's some tracks that push, you know, push the boundaries, it's pretty wild. Anyway, so while some of that magic, you kind of have to just chalk up to being good old-fashioned luck, I think... Style Wooten also deserves a lot of credit for uh, the sound and because of his approach. Um, and I guess I would call his approach simple yet really insightful. It was basically, you know, let the people make the music that they want to make with minimal interference, but also giving them the complete support and expert in musical accompaniment. Um, seems to be a winning formula. So I actually found a quote from the godfather of Memphis producer, Sam Phillips, who once said about his classic work at Sun, quote, our informality gives us hit records, uh, which I think is a mantra that Stahl Wooten seemed to really embody. Although they may not have been hit records, they were great records because of that informality. Anyway, whether Stahl's hands-off approach was intentional or simply a reflection of his skills is pretty inconsequential in my opinion. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, Designer Records was really as much of a reflection of its owner as of the countless road-tested gospel groups that walk through those doors. I'm going to quote Roland Jaynes again, who said, quote, of, uh, excuse me, speaking of Stahl Wooten, quote, he didn't cheat nobody. He treated everybody right. He felt that he was performing a service, and, you know, he was. He didn't do business the way most people would do it, but that didn't mean he wasn't a fair guy. Stahl was great. He would give them their freedom. It was their record, and he would let them cut it. So speaking of those groups, uh, despite the fact that they came from every corner of the country and arrived with their own unique styles, I think they all had one important thing in common, which is that, you know, palpable passion for the music they were making and that excitement to be in a professional studio. I just think so much of it is clearly audible, um, especially in the best of those designer recordings. To quote Roland Jaynes again, he said, quote, see, these gospel groups, man, they're doing it for the love of what they're doing. They used to get in their cars, maybe two or three carloads of them, and they'd come down south and they'd work down here all Friday night and Saturday and Sunday. They'd miss a day's work, maybe two days' work, and get back home. They were doing it because they loved it, man. Anyway, but despite their passion, most of the groups had really never performed outside of the church and often needed some coaching. So a studio bassist Gary Draffin recalled, quote, Many of the artists were so green that I had to show them how to sing into the mics. But uh, Draven himself was also quick to point out that that learning curve went both ways because a lot of the studio musicians were steeped in country and rock rather than gospel. So to quote him again, he said, I'm a child of the Lord, but at first I didn't know, how, didn't know much about gospel, but I was a quick study. So uh, much like the songs produced at Stax Records, I think the music of Designer really benefited greatly from that bridging of the gap between the white studio musicians and the black musicians from the road who came in to record and, you know, those unique elements that each each brought to the table. Um, that's a large reason why this music is so dynamic, in my opinion. So while some of the songs, like I said, are kind of fairly standard gospel tunes in terms of the vocals and lyrics, I think almost all of them have some genre bending elements to them. I mean, you'll get a random rockabilly guitar riff or a funky bass line. And this really adds, uh, you know, to the dynamic quality of them. Anyway, one of the few acts who actually recorded a designer that were 
interviewed about their experience. Once again, there were very few we know anything about, but there was one group called the Shaw Singers, which was a duet of Reverend Johnny Shaw and his wife, Opal. So in an interview, Johnny recalled, quote, Opal saw an ad in the newspaper or some kind of magazine. It said, if you want to make a record for $425, you can become a star. And she followed up on it. It was Style Wooten and Designer Records in Memphis. We went to Style Wooten, told him we wanted to cut a record, and gave him 425 He took us in the studio and we cut a single, thinking that the number one song was going to be a song called I Made a Promise. But in fact, it was this old life, this old life that caught on. We cut the record and took 500 copies home. They didn't last long. People in the community bought them and we would sell them wherever we went to sing. And brother Theo Wade of WDIA played it. He started playing the song on WDIA and we started getting calls from around the Mid-South, places we'd never been before, like Arkansas, Alabama, Missouri. By this time, we'd made such a name for ourselves that Style wanted to do a contract. No more paying. He said, we want to get you into the studio and don't worry about the 425 bucks. So as that, you know, quick little story illustrates, I think designer really was a crucial tool in allowing some of these smaller gospel groups with modest means, the ability to, you know, record songs that they were not only deeply proud of, but which could really create waves locally and bring in some real income for them. Once again, not national stars, but regional stars um, with a regional hit record. Pretty cool. Anyway, another artist who spoke about his time with Designer was a man by the name of Reverend Houston Potch Jr., uh, who he actually recorded a few songs with another singer by the name of Sister Mary Pride. So, ironically, a bit, he found out about the label by listening to the Shaw Singers, who I just quoted before. So, here's what Reverend Potch said. Quote, I called Style about recording after buying one of the Shaw, uh, Shaw Singers singles on Designer. I asked the Lord to give me a song that would make people rejoice, and he gave me Strong Believer. It took me 30 minutes to write it while driving my car and watching the road. Then I ran home and worked out the music on the piano. Sister Mary's pride's voice blended so well with mine. When I put the song on my stereo, I fell in love with it. But I controlled myself pretty good. My life was with the church. So before we continue, let's listen to that track that was apparently handed down from on high to Reverend Potts. This is his song, Strong Believer, recorded with Sister Mary Pride. Says the Lord, bless my soul. Says the Lord, make me whole. I'm a strong, strong believer. Yes, I Despite the fact that none of the designer recordings ever became national hits, uh, the sheer number of recordings that the label released certainly, I think, make it one of the most successful independent gospel labels of the era. So by most counts, the label produced over 500 singles and several albums, which is 
pretty prolific for such a small outfit. Things were going so well, in fact, that even when Roland Janes closed Sonic Studio in 1973, Star Wooten had enough loyal customers that he just simply bought his own gear and moved the operation into his own home. So, I think it's probably important to remember that Style was not only running designer at this point, but up to five or six several other labels at the same time. So, you can only imagine what the scene of scene at his home must have been like. Anyway, Stahl continued to record artists under the designer label up until 1978, when he closed down all of his operations for, I guess the best way to be, unknown reasons. Um, found several sources that suggested different things. One that was was uh, that Style was pressured out of the business by rival record producers, I guess who were upset that his rates were that cheap, while others suggested that um, he would he dealt with alcohol, which I know is a fact, but that his alcoholism just got so bad that it led him to abandon his work. Either way, the fact of the matter is, is that one of Memphis's greatest independent labels was no more, and that sadly it had died with a whimper, not a bang. So... Despite the fact that none of designer's artists went on to become a household name, um, and I know I'm reiterating the point, but it is the special thing about these, is I just think these recordings really serve as some of the most pristine historical documents about the sound of Southern music at that time. Um, really provide a fascinating window into just what black gospel artists sounded like at this time. Because once again, this is what they had on the road. This is not a producer's hand in it. This is real and authentic and just that blending of gospel and country and soul and rock into something wonderful and authentic is just exciting to hear. It was exciting to discover. Anyway, now at this point, uh, you may be asking yourself, you know, if all of these artists are unknowns and their recordings only numbered in the hundreds at best, how the hell do, do we know about them? Which, of course, is a fair question. Well, your answer is that like with so much obscure great music that eventually reaches the light of day, we have those obsessive rare vinyl collectors and crate diggers to think. Um, one record collector named Bruce Watson, Watson, excuse me, was particularly important in gathering and assembling the designer singles, um, which apparently was a 15-year endeavor. So after collecting upwards of 100 of the label singers, Watson went to Big Legal Mess Records, um, worked with them, and they released a box set called the, Sound, the Soul of Designer Records, which is where all of the songs you heard from today were pulled. So obviously it is highly re recommended if you can find it. I think there are 101 tracks. You've heard three. I, of course, have not heard them all, but I don't think I've heard a bad one in the bunch. So once again, that's called The Soul of Designer Records on Big Legal Mess Records. Anyway, um, going back to that record collector, Bruce Watson, uh, he was in an interview explained why the records from designer were so attracted to him. And he said, quote, it's soul without the sex, the strength and earthiness of these voices moved me. When I first came across the label, you could change the lyrics on so many of these songs and have classic soul recordings. So when the soul of designer records box set was released in 2014, it was, as you may imagine, widely celebrated by fans and critics alike, who I think were, everyone was just struck by both the sheer volume and the just undeniable quality of all these unearthed tunes. So I wanted to quote one of those reviews from music journalist Colin Fitzgerald, who wrote, quote, 
The greatest value in the soul of designer records is in its exhaustive depiction of the common man. People that made powerful, meaningful music, not for money, glory, or fame, but for a higher power. This is a type of music that's very rarely heard on a mainstream stage. Music that comes straight from the souls of humble people. People who would never endeavor to call themselves artists. People without lofty ambitions, insidious intentions, or selfish motivations. People who made music purely for the joy of it's very uh, for the joy of it. It's very literally the definition of soul music. In that way, it's kind of indispensable. I agree, Mister Fitzgerald. Anyway, um, as far as Mister Star Wooten, he uh, after the end of his labels, he actually started working as a custodian at MIFA. If you don't know, if you're not a Memphian, that is the Memphis Interfaith Association at charities run thrift stores and such. Anyway, he started working as a custodian at MIFA. Worked there into the late seventies. Um, at some point in the nineteen nineties, Stal and his wife moved back to his hometown, um, and then into Mississippi. And he actually started producing records again under the label Style, Stalway, and Good News up until his death in nineteen ninety eight. So, continuing in music was not well known, but I, I was once again just so happy for uh, that solo designer records that's come out because. I wouldn't have been able to do this episode without it. I don't think style would have ever gotten the uh, credit he deserves, but here we are. So one, two cheers for the, the crate diggers out there anyway. Well, I think that's a pretty good note to end on in terms of designer records, but before we move on, let's listen to one more standout song from the designer catalog. This is a rock rocking gospel song called I am going home from the group. O'Neill and the Dean brothers, which is, Yet another group that quiet, quietly disappeared from history after the designer session. Hope you enjoy. That'll bring us to the end of our story about designer records. Um, hopefully you enjoyed that. And if you liked what you heard, then there's a lot more of these songs you can find on YouTube, especially wasn't able to find them on any of the other services yet, but look up designer records on YouTube. There's plenty more. Um, again, I definitely suggest taking the time to sift through um, some of the tracks that I wanted to mention in case you want to check out more. Tone the Bells Easy, Vietnam, I Know It's Jesus, three great tracks, but 
Again, there's very few weak ones on this whole uh, 101 track set. Anyway, but before we head to the Mud Island mixtape, I just want to thank the good folks at Arts Memphis and the Genium Foundation for their support of this show. And, of course, a big thanks to everyone out there who got us to Season 2. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to Memphis Musicology on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. And be sure to leave a rating and review, too, if you haven't. Also, if you want to reach out to me directly with any questions or comments or show suggestions, feel free to email me at Ezra at MemphisRockInSoul.org. That is the letter N, Ezra at MemphisRockInSoul.org. I'd be happy to hear from you. I'd be happy to take your suggestions whatever you want to talk about. With that being said, let's hop on the monorail and head over to the Mud Island to add another track to the mixtape. So welcome back to the Mud Island mixtape, where we come at the end of each show to add another great track to our ever-growing list. So today's song was actually a last minute change because I stumbled on it uh, just as I was finishing up the episode. And as you'll see and as you'll agree, it was too perfect to pass up on. So one of the many labels that Style Wooten ran was called Allendale, which specialized in country music. And much like designer, Allendale was also a vanity label open to anyone with a little spending cash. Unfortunately, that means that once again, little is known about the artist Roy Metters, who is the singer of today's song. Um, For what I could gather, Metters only recorded two tracks on Ellendale, and it's actually quite possible that they're the only two records he ever made, which was the case with so many people he recorded with Style Wooden. Thankfully, one of the two songs he recorded is a great song called, believe it or not, The Ballad of Big Style Wooten. Which is, of course, a tribute to the king of Memphis's independent labels. So, I think the song really does it. It's fun, goofy, does a great job of kind of describing style Wooten. But, luckily, Metters got one prediction wrong when he's saying, quote, One of these days he'll move from Memphis town, then he's going to be Nashville bound. Sorry, Mr. Metters, not this time. He may have loved country, but style Wooten was Memphis through and through. Anyway... Without further ado, here's Roy Metters with his 1966 track, The Ballad of Big Style Wooten. Catch y'all next time. This is a true story about a friend of mine in country music. He'll become a legend before his time, Big Style. There's a big tall man in Memphis, Tennessee. Not six foot tall, but he's six foot three. Big Style. Big style, big style The first time I met this big tall man He said hi with a grin and he shook my hand Big style, big style, big style He loves country music right from the heart He helped men and artists get the start Big style, big style, big style he promotes the records and he does it right He's even got a show on a Saturday night Big style, big style, big style The 
preceding is an Elm production. For more information, go to theoamnetwork.com. If you hear-